So today I'm going to give it a little bit of a preview first. I'm, it's going to be a little bit more of a, not a normal sermon for me. The, the next five weeks, in fact, aren't going to be kind of normal sermons. For the next five weeks, we're really going to be talking about our church's strategy. This is a series called Shift, Experiencing Change from the Inside Out. Now, if you know anything about me, you know, I always have a stack of books, and, and it's not just theology books, though I do like those, that I read a lot of business books and psychology books and science books. And one of the areas that I really get excited about is talking about change, how people change, how groups of people change, organizational change, how the world is changed. And so in these next few weeks, you're going to hear me reference a lot of business and science and psychology and marketing type worlds. You're going to hear me pulling in data from all kinds of fields. And some of this is research-driven and going to be, I think, really interesting and really helpful that our church could and should learn from these things. But today, I just want to lay some groundwork and say that's really, really superficial compared to what we're going to be talking about. That the New Testament is going to describe in no uncertain terms that to be a Christian is to be radically undeniably, supernaturally changed from the inside out. And this is something that the business world and the science world and psychologists can't help us with. Christian hope is not just that we're going to become better people. It is not a self-help project. It's not that we're going to make the world a little bit better, although I hope we do. The Christian hope is that you and I, that someday God is going to completely remove all sin and death. He's going to take away all that's broken in us. He's going to completely abolish. The, the, the picture in Revelation is that he throws sin and death into the pit forever. It will be gone forever. And he's going to recreate us and our entire world. It's a whole new place. That is our hope. That is the change we long for. And that is not something that we can create. So the question that's going to drive us for the next few weeks is not just how do we make little tweaks, how do we become a little bit better person, how do we see our world become a little bit better place, although I hope all that happens. I do. I want to talk about how do we see that? How, how do we experience the recreative work of God starting in our lives and ultimately in the whole world? How do we connect our lives with ultimate change. So, rather than going to the current literature, we're actually going to be starting in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, but hold your place. It's going to be a long time before we get there. Hold your place. 1 Corinthians. And the question I want to ask starting out today is just simply this. How did the early Christians do it? Like, what was God's plan with them? How did they experience radical, supernatural, undeniable change in their lives and in our world? I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God today. I don't know if you believe that he can change you. I don't know if you want to be changed. All I'm asking today is that you would take a risk to simply think about what, if you were to open yourself up to what God might do through you and in you and in our world, what would you ask for? Like, what sin habit have you given up on that you can't, don't feel like can be changed anymore? What relationship is so broken that if God doesn't do something, there's no hope for it? 
What change would you like to see in your heart and in our world? So when uh, Jenny and I were first married, actually it was a ways into it, four years into it, we got a chance to go to Europe, and, and one of the great joys is southern Italy. Now, when you go to southern Italy, and I'm not saying if, because all of you should, if you get no other application points today, go to southern Italy. When you go to southern Italy, of course you have to go to Naples, right? You have to. It's just one of those things. If you go to southern Italy, you have to go to Naples, but you don't stay in Naples. Nobody stays in Naples. Naples is dirty and crowded and run by the mafia. You don't want to do that. So you get on this little train called the Circumvesuvius, and you're going to take it around the Bay of Naples. You're going to go past this giant volcano called Mount Vesuvius, and you're going to take it down to the south end, which is this quaint little town right on the, the coast there called Sorrento. And Sorrento, you can actually afford a real meal. You can afford a room that overlooks this, uh, the Bay of Naples. You can take day trips down the Amalfi Coast. It is just gorgeous. And that's where you're going to come. You're going to sit and you're going to drink in southern Italian living. And while you're there, you're going to take a day trip back up. You just hop in that little train again. And you're going to stop by Pompeii. Let me, let me show you a picture here. And in the background there, you'll, you'll notice Mount Vesuvius. Pompeii is this famous, famous little town that in 79 AD was covered instantaneously by, by hundreds of millions of tons of Vesuvian lava. Now this is both horrifying and, and pretty fantastic. It's horrifying because, well, the entire town was covered by lava instantaneously and everyone, everything in it was destroyed. But... The thing that's fantastic about this is that it wasn't really destroyed. It was when everything is covered by instantaneously by lava, it's actually preserved pretty nicely. And so it was buried there for 1,800 years before it was rediscovered. And they started digging it up. And today, archaeologists have uncovered, they've excavated about a third of this city. And what they found is this perfectly preserved, this pristine city on the Mediterranean coast from the time the Roman Empire, from uh, approximately the time of the New Testament, this pristine city where you can walk the streets, you can go in the houses, you can, you can see the architecture, you can see the original mosaics, you can go to the little shops where they sold food. It's, it's really pretty fantastic. So after you've walked through that for the day, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to go then back up to Naples, because in Naples there's this museum. The museum is where they took all the big artifacts. So they have everything there. I mean, they have not just mosaics and statues and stuff, but they have uh, combs and dishes and furniture and, and artwork of all kinds in this, in this uh, museum. So when you go up there, you'll, you get to see a picture of the world frozen in time from 79 A.D. As you explore this collection, something that made an impression, at least on me, is that I tend to think, like naturally, when I open up my Bible and read it, and I think back to New Testament times, my, my default method is to think that the New Testament world was just like ours, just without cell phones. But the reality is that it's not. It was a different way of doing life. I mean, from, from the start to the, to the finish, everything was different. It was a different set of values, a different morality. These were different people. And as you walk through, when you start thinking about the Apostle Paul, when he first showed up in these towns all across the Roman Empire to share the gospel with people, what did he see when he saw a world that was untouched by Judeo-Christian ethics, morality, religion? Well, as you walk through this museum, you get to see in some pretty vivid detail just how different it was. The first thing 
and it has to be the most exciting thing, is that when the lava came, it caught people whatever they were doing. And so you see all these statues, and they're not statues, they're actually molds of what used to be a person going... And all over in this museum. So, so you walk around the corner and you see this. And the thing that's so shocking is besides the fact that that's a real person covered in lava from 79 AD. is the fact that over and over again you'll see, notice around his waist there's this belt. And you see this on, on most of the people that you, you see in these boxes. You see this belt over and over and over again. And then you go read on the little plaque and you know what it says. It says, these belts were a symbol that this person was owned by someone else. It's a slave. That six out of ten people in Pompeii at the time were slaves. And as you walk around the corner from that room, if that's not shocking enough, there's an adults-only room. Like, they've collected all the pornographic artifacts from Pompeii. And it's an enormous room. Enormous. Like, it's everything you can imagine. It's like bowls and, and, and plates and, of course, what you'd imagine of pictures and stuff like that. But they even have things like wind chimes. Like, who makes a wind chime pornographic? Really? It's really breathtaking the, the extent to which pornography was an accepted part of their culture. Like, this was public displays. And then if you past all the bodies, and then you go through the porn section, and then you go down, and you see the largest collection there. And what it is, is do you you know what the largest collection of artifacts they have from Pompeii is? It's diningware. Like massive and massive all these, these cabinets full of, of diningware that you can see. All these plates and forks and knives. And, and as you read through the thing, you realize this was a people who were obsessed with feasting. Everything was about a feast. Everything was about a party. And, and that's, that's, that actually sounds really good. But then when you, when you get to the line, you start seeing they have these whole collections of party favors. And you know what you get when you went to a Pompeian, uh, Pompeian is that the word? party you would get this little bronze statue of a skeleton. And that skeleton was to remind you that you need to party like there's no tomorrow. That you need to party because you might die. This might be your last chance to get completely smashed. They even had this picture on the wall. This was, this was a plaque reminding you to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Drink up while you still can. And as you go through, so you, you, you've got slavery pornography, drunkenness, and and the thing that blows my mind is the fact that all of this was officially endorsed by the religion. This was central to how their economy functioned, how the religion functioned, how their their government functioned, that all of these things, what we would know as gross immorality, was central. It was officially stamped and endorsed When you look back and you think back, what would it be like to live at that time? It's shockingly immoral. Can you imagine trying to raise a family? Can you imagine trying to raise a little girl in that culture? Can you imagine trying to be a Christian and trying to stay pure in that culture? Like you can't even look at wind chimes for goodness sake. 
If you do a bit of research, you're going to find that these characteristics are not unique to Pompeii. This is actually a snapshot that's happening in varying degrees all the way across the Roman Empire at this time. That slavery, pornography, drunkenness, and idolatry, this is the cultural norm. These things are economically, politically, and religiously endorsed. So I say all this to say, now, we come to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I want you to think about what it was like for the Apostle Paul, a really good Jewish guy who grew up in a Jewish family with Jewish education, who knew the Ten Commandments and followed God's law. Imagine what it was like the first time he stepped into Corinth. Now, Corinth, uh, among the varying degrees of, of, of where people were at in their immorality, Corinth was a rock star of immorality. If debauchery was an Olympic sport, they would be the Michael Phelps of the ancient world. They, they would make... Amsterdam and and Las Vegas look prudish. Corinth was famous. It was famous for its uninhibited sexuality. It was just part of life. In the center of town, they've excavated ancient Corinth. If you go to the center of town, right next to the market, right next to Wegmans, where you go pick up groceries with your kids, do you know what they had? It was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love. Now, I'm going to leave it to your imagination what might have actually taken place there. But let's just say, to get the sense of the scope of it, they had 1,000 sacred prostitutes working for them at one time. 1,000. Can you imagine the family shopping trip as you're going to Wegmans, and Johnny's asking, Mommy, what is that? Cover your eyes, boy. Can you imagine... That in the center of town, it's like a red light district with the Wegmans in the middle. This is the world that was normal to them. This is what was endorsed. This is what they, they, they did. This is just how they lived. That Corinth was such a nasty place that people actually started using the, the name Corinth as a, as a verb and as an adjective. Like they would literally say, we have examples of people from other, throughout the region actually saying, he Corinthianized her. Corinthianized. Like, don't make me get all Corinth up on you. So if you're the Apostle Paul, and God has called you to take the gospel to people who've never heard before, what in the world are you supposed to do with a place like Corinth? What in the world could you possibly do to affect change in a city where the government, the religion, the economy... And the population are so set in ways that are opposed to God, to basic morality, to the truth. Like, what could you possibly do? In Acts chapter 18, we see where the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey actually shows up at Corinth. And you know what he does? He does exactly what all of us would do. He shows up in Corinth and avoids all the Corinthians. He does. Seriously. He shows up at the synagogue. He's like, I don't know about all these Corinthians. I'm going to the Jews there. Because, you know, Jews, they're going to have the Ten Commandments. They're going to have God's law. We're going to have scriptures. They're going to have a hope in the Messiah. I, they will accept Jesus. They will, they'll be ready to change their lives, to experience this change from the inside out. They're going to be ready for what God wants for them. So he shows up there and he tells them the long-awaited Messiah. Let's look at the scriptures. The guy that you've been waiting for, he came. His name's Jesus. I met him on the road to Damascus. You need to get to know him. He's living. He's coming back. 
You know what they did? Well, we don't quite know what they did. The text says they became abusive. Abusive in the book of Acts usually means they tried to kill him. Literally. So Paul, in an act of desperation, is going to look at them and and listen to this quote. He says, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. You know what he just said? He said, I had the greatest news in the universe that the Messiah is here. Jesus is here. Your hope is here. And you rejected it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go share it with the filthy, sexed up, drunken Corinthians. And that's what he did. Now I want you to notice as he, he goes into town, I want you to think about this. He had no strategic plan. He had no really cool downtown location with a great photo exhibit. He didn't even have a blackboard and chalk. He didn't have a team. Later on, Timothy and Silas would join him, but at the time he did not have a team. He had no money and no influence in the town. Now, I don't know about you, but usually I I think of the Apostle Paul in a heroic light, and we should, because the things that he did, the courage he had was heroic. But but the reality is is that if, if we set that aside for a minute and just think about what he was stepping into, think about what, think about yourself. God has sent you to Corinth to tell them to repent and turn to Jesus, that he's the only hope that he can change their lives. But you know no one there, you have no money, you have no authority. This is one of the darkest cities in the history of of humanity. You have no one on your side. There's literally a group of people out to kill you right now. Satan himself has said that he wants to destroy you. Like, this would be terrifying. In fact, it must have been terrifying. We, uh, We know from Acts chapter 18, I have this verse, that... Paul was so scared that God actually had to come to him a vision and say, Hey, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. I'm with you, Paul. I am with you in this. But I want you to look at that second part there. The reason why the apostle must stay in Corinth in this filthy, drunken, sexed-up community is because I have many people in this city. That out there, all you see are filthy, sexed-up, drunken idolaters, but I see my children who are lost and hurting. Like right there, you might just see Corinthians, but I see my children who I sent my son to die for. For God, there are no people who are too far gone. There are no people who are too sinful for his grace. There are no cases where they are unchangeable or unsavable. And I want you to notice the only instructions God gives Paul to see this change take place, to see their lives change, to see the gospel break into this town is this. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. So so this master plan, how you're going to disrupt what's happening that's supported by the economy, the religion, the government, everything, how you're going to disrupt these lives and break in with the kingdom of God is this. 
Just keep talking about Jesus. Just keep talking about Jesus. Like, don't stop. Don't be afraid. Just, just keep talking about Jesus. That's God's plan. Now, let's imagine this at street level for just a minute. Okay, let's, let's imagine. Imagine you're a Corinthian. I know. A little risque here. Okay, you, you just woke up. Your head is throbbing. You're all hung over. You don't have any money on you. You're like, oh, you wake up in the back of an El Camino with a new tattoo. Like, oh, this is just who you are. You're Corinthian. You're sitting there in the middle of the red light district on, on, on the stoop of one of these great, great temples. Things going by you everywhere that you can't even mention in here. And this short, ugly, balding guy shows up to you. He says, hey, you. And you're like, what? You know, God loves you. And he longs to be with you. That this is not what God has called you to do. And he goes on to tell you about Jesus. This man you've never heard before. That God actually came to earth and became a man. And that he loved you so much that he died for you to create a way. That if you'd only repent and turn from your life of sin, that you could have his life, that you could know where you're going, that you could know where eternity's headed, that you could be part of something eternal. And when he tells you about Jesus, something breaks in you. Like you knew all this. You knew that you couldn't go on living this way. You knew you had to change. You knew that this life was just going to kill you. But you never could have imagined that God actually loved you. So Sunday morning, you get on your best Corinthian outfit. You go up. Is this the door? I guess so. Open the door. Chloe opens the door. It was her house church that was run in Corinth. And you come in expecting to see a bunch of holy people. But what do you see? Oh, wait, I know her. She's a former prostitute. You see drunks still reeking of alcohol. There's that crazy guy who used to do prophesying in the street. Half the people have belts on because they're slaves. Everyone looks just like you. And you sit there and you sing some hymns that are unfamiliar to you, but the Apostle Paul tells you they're ancient hymns that God's people have been singing forever. And then he takes a loaf of bread and breaks it and says, Christ's body was broken for you when we eat this, we remember what he did for us and that we feed on him, that he is our life. And then he takes the cup and he says, Christ's blood was shed for you that you can be washed clean because he died for you. And then he opens up the scriptures and he talks to you and he tells you about Jesus. He tells you that when you turn from your old way of life and trust what Jesus did on the cross, that God the Father will send his own spirit into you. That the thing that's bursting in you right now, that repentance is not coming from you. It's from the spirit of God and that he wants to give you a new life. That he wants to change you from the inside out. That if you believe in him, you are identified with Jesus and God no longer sees you with all of your faults and sins. And he looks at the prostitute and says, God doesn't see you covered with shame. You've been washed. 
And he looks at the slave and says, God no longer says that you're a slave. You are God's free man. And he looks at the poor man, the beggar, and he says, you are now entrusted with the riches of God. And he looks at you and says, you are no longer an addict. You're free. You're called to be an ambassador of God. You're given the very mission of God because God loves you. And now he's going to send you out to tell the whole world about it. As you sit there, you can hardly breathe. And you don't know if it's conviction. You don't know if it's heartburn. You've never experienced this quite before. But you know that you can never go back to your old way of life. You know, the grace of God, when it smashes into your soul, is devastating. Like, you can't look at things the same way. You can't look at your relationships the same way. You can't look at yourself the same way. You can't look at our world the same way. That you have a new name, a new life, a new hope, a new spirit, a new people, a new family. A new reason to get up in the morning. And it ruins your old way of life and gives you an entirely new one. And that's what happened in person after person after person after person in Corinth. Because the Apostle Paul just wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. That every person sitting in that house church was a testimony of how God had smashed into their soul and it had been changed forever. When we come to the Apostle Paul's first letter that he actually writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's going to remind them about how Jesus had changed their lives, and he says it this way. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, the message that God himself took on flesh, became a man and died for you, that is folly to those who are perishing. That if you go out in the street right now and say your entire life should be changed because some first century Jew died on a cross. That's just stupid, isn't it? Doesn't that just sound like foolishness? Ah, but to us. To us who are being saved. To us who have seen and felt and known the work of God in our lives. To us, who the grace of God has smashed into our lives and changed everything, it is the power of God that the gospel, the message of what Jesus did on the cross, is the power of God to change our lives and our world. In the next section, Paul actually looks around the room and watches this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise... Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. You know why God picked this riffraff in this room right now, he says? To show his glory to the world. That no one could boast that it is purely by the grace of God that people are changed. And watch this. Verse 30. And because of him, because God the Father sought you out, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and re redemption. I want you to hear this. The Apostle Paul, looking at the church at Corinth, says, because you believe the gospel, you are in Christ Jesus. That means you are now identified. You've identified your life with him. That when God sees you, he sees Christ. That when, when you come to God, you come through Christ. That you view your whole life as in Christ. 
And he says, because of that, because you've identified yourself with Christ, you have a new life. You have a new relationship with God, righteousness. You have a new purpose, sanctification. You have a new way of seeing things. You have a new love for God. You have a new hope. You have a new reason to get out of bed in the morning. You have a new direction. That's what redemption is. I really only have one point today. And it's Paul's point. The gospel is the power of God that changes our lives and our world. Chapter 2, he says it this way. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It wasn't my preaching that changed you. Do you know what changed them? Verse 2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know why your lives were changed? Because I told you about Jesus. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you hear this? That the change that the Apostle Paul is talking about, the power of God, is not through my preaching. It's not because we have a particularly powerful set of worship. It's not because we have the best photo exhibit in town, although we do. It's not because we look slick. It's not because we have the right program. That the power of God is in the gospel. It's in this message that God actually loves you and came after you. That Jesus Christ actually died and rose from the dead. That he's already defeated this. That he's giving you a new identity. That he's inviting you to a new kingdom. Only the power of God unleashed in the gospel can save you. This, this is something that is so basic and so simple that you're going to come and be like, Oh, Paul, come on. I've been a Christian for a long time. I know this stuff. Okay, the gospel. Now what? What's next? But I want you to see this, that when there are problems in the Corinthian church, what did the Apostle Paul say? Believe the gospel. Like, if you have got problems in your marriage, what did he say? He said, believe the gospel. If he said, there's problems with sin, he said, believe the gospel. There's problems with division in the church. He said, you need to believe the gospel. The Apostle Paul believed to his core that the gospel is the power of God to change our lives and our world. This is the same thing that Jesus taught. Jesus said, people who understand the gospel... They're going to understand that the gospel is really worth what it's really worth. They're going to be willing to give up everything. They're even going to gladly die for it. The apostle John, when he describes it, he says, they're going to be so changed by the gospel that people who believe the gospel are going to be so changed that people are going to look at them and say, you're a new person. You've been born again. The apostle Paul will unpack it even further and in the next, in chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor greedy, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know what he just said? He said, no one who identifies themselves as a Corinthian will go into the kingdom of God. None. And such were some of you. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That you've been identified with Jesus and that's who you were, but that's not who you are. That no Corinthian will go into the kingdom of God. But everyone, even Corinthians, who identify themselves as a Christian, identify themselves with Christ, they will be welcome in the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, there is story after story about how the gospel radically, undeniably, supernaturally changes people from the inside out. There's just a laundry list. If you go through the gospels, it drives people to sell everything they have and give it away. It drives people to risk their lives and even give up their lives for Jesus. People, you're going to see addicts being set free. People were demonized. Back in the right mind, we're going to see prostitutes turned into disciples. In Thessalonica, we actually see riots break out. When Paul, all he does is he comes out and he starts telling people about Jesus and riots break out in the town. Do you know how much I'd give for a riot to break out in Phoenixville because we were preaching? Just, I'm not asking for a big one. Just a couple cars turned over. Wouldn't that be awesome? When the gospel was preached, whole industries were turned over. A murderer was turned into an apostle. I mean, don't you hear this and think, yes. Like, if it's actually true that God himself became a man to come after us, to tell us the message of his coming kingdom, to set us free from sin and death, if that's actually true, as crazy as it sounds, if it's true, that should change everything. It should. So my question is, why can't we see this change in our lives? I mean, has the gospel changed? Is it still the power of God to change lives and change our world? Is Jesus still in the business of changing lives? What is stopping us from experiencing radical, supernatural undeniable change in our lives, in our church, in our community, and in our world today. I think we can experience this. I think we are experiencing this. I think we can experience more. You know, what's so encouraging about the Corinthian church is that we will never, no matter how hard we try, we will never be quite as messed up as they are. That's encouraging. Uh, we don't really know the rest of the story except that the Apostle Paul, he's only there for 18 months and then he has to do what he does, which is he goes to places where they've never heard the gospel. He shares with them about Jesus, right? So after 18 months, he's off. He's off to the next place. And when he leaves, all we know is a couple years later, Chloe is writing letters to Paul. Paul, things are getting out of hand here. There are people getting drunk at communion. There's lawsuits. There's one guy in incestuous relationship. Like, it is crazy, so you know what the Apostle Paul does? He writes 1 Corinthians. And he doesn't say, bad, shame on you. You should be changed. You know what he says? He reminds them of who they are. And point by point, he says, ah, drunkenness. Ah, marriage. Ah, sexuality. Ah, your career. Each one, one by one, he applies the gospel of Jesus Christ to it. If you believe that Jesus is who he said that you are identified with him, it's going to change every single area. 
And so the work of Christianity isn't just to share the gospel, to get people saved initially, but it's to continue to apply the gospel to every area of our lives. The Apostle Paul will describe it later as, as a continual dying to ourselves and living to Christ. He describes the Christian life as simply applying the gospel every day to every aspect of our lives. How will this affect my career? How should this affect my marriage? How should this affect our parenting, our bank accounts, our grocery shopping, our worship services, our wind chimes? For the next four weeks, we're going to unpack, based upon this major premise that the Apostle Paul taught, and I believe to the very core of my being, that the gospel is still the power of God to change our lives and our world. That what Jesus Christ did on the cross should change absolutely everything, starting with us but not ending with us, going out, radiating to the whole wide world. This is, this is the core of how we function as a church. This is the core of how we grow in our walk. That it is just applying the gospel that Jesus Christ died for us to every area of our lives. That Jesus is still in the business of changing our lives. And we have this little chart here, which I'll show you. This right here is just a simple way to think about how do I grow in my faith? How do I apply the gospel to my life so that I can experience what God has called me to be? What he's calling us to all to be? What he's recreating our world to be? And it's simply that the cross of Christ changes every area of our lives individually. It's going to affect who I am. That when I engage God personally, that when I meet with him, I can be changed by him. The next thing is that it's going to change our relationships with one another. That when we connect in accountable relationships, that God uses that, that God calls us to that, to, to apply the gospel to one another, that that is a catalyst for how we grow spiritually. Next is that God calls us to serve and be served in a new family, what we call the church. That when we come here, we hear the, we hear the gospel preached to one another. When we see the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ functioning together when we serve one another. And lastly... Maybe, maybe most importantly, that the gospel never dead ends on us. It always, always, always sends us out. That when we've experienced the grace of God, the love of God that's changed us, we're always called out to go on mission. Always called out to share, to never stop talking about Jesus. You know, one of the most difficult things. Um, I'm the type of guy who, if I have a pair of shoes or a jacket or something, you know when I stop wearing that t-shirt that I actually need to change? It's either when my wife takes it away from me or, or it gets so bad that it completely rips out. Like, I mean, like my shirt, when my stomach's hanging out, I'm like, oh, I guess I shouldn't wear this t-shirt anymore. Isn't that the way we are? Like, we, we don't want to change until we absolutely have to, until the pain of not changing is worse than the pain of changing. Church, we, we have an opportunity to redeem today for God's kingdom. To experience the gospel in new ways today. If you took that risk of saying, what would God do in me if I gave myself wholly to him? 
What would that look like for you?